20% of waking hours is with us. Think of all that other time that students are away from us, you know, between weekends and after school and, and summers. And so we're really making a concentrated effort to get to the students the supports that exist and where they don't exist, they need to be created. This year, the CDC's annual Youth Risk Behavior Survey offered a grim outlook for the well-being of young people and emerging research points to social media as a key factor. Over the next few weeks in a special five-part series, we're bringing together experts, advocates, and school leaders to better understand the impact of social media on mental health and discuss how best to support kids and teens. I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. Today, I'm joined by Boston Public Schools Superintendent Mary Skipper and Chief of Student Support Jillian Kelton to talk about how social media impacts kids in and out of school. Good morning to you both. Thank you for joining me uh, today. It's great to have you both here. Well, thank you. Very excited. Thank you. So, Mary, you've been superintendent now for eight months of BPS. You came over to lead BPS from Somerville Public Schools. It's your return to BPS, though. How are you finding it? Is it different now, both in the role and in the district, than it was before? I think, first of all, I'm ecstatic to be back. It feels very much like home. The district raised me 20 years here. I wanted to be careful coming back that I didn't make assumptions that it was the same district. You know, it's been through, I think, as, a, as, an, as an organization, a lot of change. Yeah. And I noticed some of those changes, just particularly the, like the instability of leadership and what that means when it comes to systems work, what it means to continuity in the work and traction. So I, I do notice differences from the district I was here, particularly at the secondary level because that's obviously the one that I was most intimate with. That said, what I love is that there's so many people here still that have stayed in the work yeah. through the pandemic, through all the leadership change, who are just incredibly dedicated and passionate. And I have a history with them. Yeah. And so in many ways coming back, I can't imagine not having worked in BPS and not having lived in Boston, trying to figure out this thing we call BPS in Boston. Yeah. So for me, it's a lot of uh, rekindling and renewing of those relationships and really listening, you know, listening to people's experiences and what their hopes and their dreams are for BPS. That's parents, families, students as well. Yeah. So I really have tried to take these first eight months and just listen and yet take action. Jillian, you are the chief of student support at BPS. So can you tell us just a little bit about how you spend your days and how things have changed in the business of student support over the past decade? You've been in education for a long... I'm assuming you guys have both been in education for at least two decades. Is that the right assumption? Yeah. Uh, slightly longer for I me. I don't mean I to date you. three decades, actually, <laughs> but yes, yeah. I, it's been a long time. So, yes. you, I mean, you've seen a lot. And yeah. so, so what does the support look like today and what do, you, what do you spend your time doing? So I started in this position as chief of student support in August. Okay. So previous to that, I was the assistant director of safety services for okay. three years. And then before that, I was school-based at Tech Boston Academy yep. for and 14 years. And we're both at Tech Boston together. We did. I knew Jillian as a baby counselor back in the day, Um, and she just amazes me every day. And seriously, in how she's grown professionally, 
what she stands for and the work she's committed to. That's great. Yeah, I think, you know, I feel incredibly lucky to be in this position. I think right now is such a exciting and pivotal time in the district. Yeah. You know, the twin pandemics have really shown a spotlight on the need for student support to be at the center of learning. When you I say mean, twin pandemics, tell which, um, what, the Black Lives Matter movement and it, COVID. Got it. Okay. Um, student support has always existed, but it has taken such a different seat right now. Mm. We understand more than anything that if students aren't connected to their learning, it's not going to happen. Right. And student support is at the center of everything. So it's a really exciting time for me because this is what I'm passionate about. This yeah. is what I've done for my entire career. So yeah. I feel incredibly blessed to be doing this work in this district and under Superintendent Skipper. Yeah, I, I think that's great. And we're going to talk today mostly about mental health and deeply, I think, too, about social media and the impact that you're seeing on social media, on kids' wellness. In terms of mental health and wellness, What's your point of view on how BPS students are faring? And I think they're not faring well across the country, you know, and I think right alongside them, parents and teachers and administrators are also like, we're just not in the best shape mentally. Is that, how are you seeing things at BPS? And you can look back and, you know, think about how you saw things years ago. Is it different today? Does it feel different? Well, so I, I definitely think it feels different. I think coming into the district, one of the things that we as a team are committed to is the whole child. And so you can set a table with wonderful academics and strong curriculum and strong instruction, lots of aspiration. But if students can't sit at the table and eat because physically they have wellness issues and mental health issues, which is a health issue, the table is not accessible to them. So I think for us as uh, servants of the whole child, we need to make sure that we're clearing as many barriers as we can on the mental health front, giving the supports, giving the resources. I just participated in the Burke's Mental Health Day where they actually did this incredible partnership with uh, Council Mejia, with Boston Medical Center, some of the city agencies, Boston Health Commission, and then our student support. And the day was organized by students for students. So they really had a chance uh, to set what the did they agenda. Focus on? Yeah. So they had um, what they wanted was a combination of information to destigmatize mental health. Okay. Some of this was information, so they had some guest speakers, but then they had stations that they designed that they felt would contribute to wellness. So yeah. they had yoga, they had tai chi, which hurt my thighs. <laughs> um, they had tai chi is harder. But <laughs> was, I, I just started it was a doing lot it. harder than yeah. I anticipated. Yeah. They had art stations like art therapy yep. stations. They this had, is students. This, this is students, students at the Burke yeah. School putting Board, these. That's right. It, sharing those. them with each other, sharing them with their fellow students. So, so they planned the day and then they worked with Council Mejia and Boston Medical and some other community-based orgs to bring the resources in to yeah, the students. That's great. And they had a, a nail station for students. Jillian, what else? They You participated as, as I did in, in some of them. They were running also some restorative circles. Restorative which circles. Which really impressive. At the event. Yes. It was that exposing kids to restorative circles. You want to talk a little bit about what those are and why students felt that that was an important thing to share? Yeah. I mean, I think what we're finding is that the use of restorative practices in school as an everyday part of school and Mm. built into our everyday curriculum is social emotional learning. 
restorative practice, restorative justice is social emotional learning. Yeah. And access and familiarity with the practice is incredibly important for our young people yeah. and for our staff and doing it with fidelity. I don't know what the circle was about. We didn't go in because they were literally in the middle of a doing a circle. And, and, you know, you can't. And, no, that energy um, is really important. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, the district, we understand that importance. Next year, we're expanding our restorative justice staff yeah. by a lot Yeah, to ensure that we're allowing schools to access this practice yeah. and do it in a way that's meaningful for them and for the students and realizing that in order to do that, we have to create both the space and the staffing for that. So, and I have no idea the answer to this question, but how, how much time does it take to become good, proficient at running a restorative circle? I would imagine it's got to be pretty intense because the, the circles themselves can be pretty intense in order to be beneficial to the participants. Absolutely. And the use of restorative circles is also something that you can use just as an entry point every day in your classroom. You yeah. can use it as an opening yeah. ceremony, a closing ceremony, you know, just an everyday practice. Right. So it is a lot of front-loading, but yeah. you find that once you've done that front-loading on the end, it's so meaningful. You yeah. create this climate. It's about a climate and culture shift, really. Yeah. I mean, that's the purpose of it. We have to become more proactive. I yeah. think for so long across the nation, student support, and climate and culture response has been just that. It's been a response. It's right. been reactive. Right. And now we're seeing that the shift has to be that it it needs to be proactive. I, I have so many questions about this. I want to get a little bit deeper into the problem first. I just shared with you a chart that came out of Jonathan Heights' work, who's at NYU Stern School. And we interviewed him during this podcast series uh, a couple of uh, interviews ago. And he shows a direct and he's adamant that this correlation is real and he's, his research has gone very deep into it. And, you know, in 2012, when the iPhone was introduced and there was a strong uptake over a short amount of time with teens and now youth, it sounds like, you know, kind of the average 10-year-old has a smartphone now. This social media, as it came, it became, you know, apps on the cell phone with the like and share buttons, you see this precipitous rise in mental health disorders. And you were there before 2012. So you saw it before everyone was walking around with this thing attached to them. Just reflecting back and looking at it now, how big a problem would you just say this is us toting around a, a, another world with us all day long? Yeah. So, so you know, Tech Boston, which we, we found in 2002, the idea was everyone, every student had a one-to-one -one laptop. And back then, that was considered really extreme. Yeah, that's, ex yeah, that's extraordinary. 2002. Yeah. And what we learned about the students is they went through an adjustment in the first year. They saw the computer as a toy. Mm -hmm. And so they would be inclined to go off task and, to, you know, go on to things that weren't going to make them the most productive. And then that slowly went away because they received training on how to use it and they became more proficient at both the applications and the computer. But more importantly, they realized if they didn't take the computer seriously and use it as a tool, they would fail. Hmm. And so there was a learning curve that happened. And you saw that by the time the students graduated, they would come back after their first year of college and they would say to us, what is wrong with the rest of the students? Like in my college, they fool around on their computer. They're distracted. Don't they understand it's a tool? That's interesting. 
I think there's several things on the phone. One is that we haven't fully figured out how to, in education, Mm -hmm. perhaps use it more as a tool. Yeah, right. And so students really are only drawn to things like social media and so forth. So there's probably more we could do there. But I don't think the student experience is much different than adult experience. I mean, when I think about my life pre-a-phone versus now, there's lots of unbalance to that, right? Lots of imbalance to that. Right. You know, where... Students really have the same issues we do as adults, you know, even though they're younger, but it just presents often differently. The distraction, the lack of start and end time of work, sleep, mm-hmm. you know, how many adults sleep with their phone? How right. many students sleep with their phone or have their phone nearby and wake up and are disrupted? And all of that has bearing on mental health. All yeah. of that has bearing on well-being. Yeah. So I think that what we're seeing with young people, and certainly in this chart, I think this mimics some of when we give the youth behavioral risk analysis, you know, the survey. What we're seeing is young women in particular are more impacted by the social media. We're also seeing, you know, in the 2021, which is our latest, like 77% of the students spend three hours or more on their phone, social media, television, something other than human contact in that way. And that's not including any time that they're spending for homework or for something that is productive. That's a good deal of their time outside. Right. Additionally, when they're in school, they'll be distracted, you yeah. know, by them. It's a, I think for teachers, you know, it's it's constantly put the phone away. You know, some of our schools have moved toward using Yonder or other kinds of products where they actually build the culture in the school to turn the phone over, put the phone into the sleeve. Yeah. And then that phone is away except for at a lunchtime or at a recess. Yeah. This is so deeply intertwined with the conversations with our families and parents. Yeah. Right? Because you'll hear parents exasperated by it. Right. What do I do? You know, they're on the phone at night. And so, and, you know, it's a battle constantly. So I think in education, you know, the more we can help with boundary setting, the more that we can show where the phone or computer can be a tool as opposed to a toy, the healthier it is. The social media in particular is difficult with our young women. You know, one, this this chart emanates like one out of two of our our young people identify as as having depressive feelings yeah. or hopelessness yeah. or disconnection. So fifty so percent of kids report yeah, one that. Out of, it was one out of two and yeah. one out of three at the middle school grades, and that yeah. was in twenty twenty one. I think social media in particular, you know, self harm behaviors, yeah. mimicking of social media platforms like TikTok, right have just led to, you know, a lot of, for students, off-task harm, and in some cases, physical harm of environment. Right. So we're in education constantly trying to figure out in BPS how to reach the parents. We offer through OIT and through our family engagement office a number of series around responsible use of technology, how to raise young people in the social media era. Yeah. You know, really trying to bring as much information to our families as possible recognizing that they're our strongest partner in this possible. How how easy or hard is that to do, though? Because I'm a parent. I have lots of friends who are parents. You're a parent. It is extremely complicated, that piece of it. And I think it's still, you know, I can talk to my kids about how to behave socially, what our expectations are for them at school and with homework, how you should be with other people, drug and alcohol use, all of those things. So there are rules, right, that you parent against and you provide boundaries and guidelines. And it feels so slippery sometimes, this added piece of 
access to where you then have to, you know, kind of teens already don't want to believe that you have any idea what you're talking about. And then, you know, when they can pull up a million TikTok accounts that are contrary, they're, they're completely full of fake information. But it, but somehow there's no way to discern what's real and what's not real. I find it very complicated to be a parent. And, you know, I, I also know how complicated it is sometimes to be a parent whose kids attend BPS because of all kinds of life circumstances. And so how do you, how do you manage those partnerships? Because I can imagine parents are leaning on you. It's so complicated. How do you really partner with parents? In right. This new so paradigm? I think this is, you know, the parent engagement piece is when I, when I first came in, one of the areas that I felt family engagement and community engagement really needed to be made a priority. Yeah. Um, I've, I've noticed that, by the you way, know, watching and, you. And communication. And sometimes yeah. that communication is difficult communication yeah. to hear something happened at school. But we feel really strongly that we need to have that level of transparency with parents. Right. Again, to be able to get the facts and to then be able to actually have conversations with their students. I mean, a lot of this is the same things in school, which is one of the best things we can do with our young people is to develop relationships with them. Right. To have conversations, right. to find out what's on their mind, to find out, you know, which as a parent, we've all gotten the how was the day? Fine. Yeah. What did you do? Nothing. Right. We've all been on the receiving end of that as parents. But again, carving out the space, you know, and whether that's at dinner, whether that's, you know, 15 minutes when they come in or before they go to bed, but really trying to check in as to what, you know, what is happening for them? What are they feeling? Yeah. As opposed to what are they doing? Yeah. You know, what are they feeling? And then making those connections. Because when young people get talking, they really want to talk. They really want to let you know. And that's what we're working on, you know, and a lot of what Jillian's working on in student support mm. is setting up through our student support teams so that we actually get to know every student. Yeah. Right? That, that there is a, a, a trusting adult that at day's end, when we ask a student, you have a trusting adult in your school that you you feel you can go to if you have an issue or you can talk to, the answer is resoundedly yes. In fact, not just one, but many. And do kids generally feel that way right now? Or are, is it? I think they do. I think coming off of a time that has been really unstable for them yeah, and has also pushed them to focus more on social media, like that was their connection to the outside world. We like really sort of fanned that flame. And it came very much alive even more so totally. when students were at home. Yeah. And that's how they communicated with one another in the outside world. Yeah. Now we put them back in school with adults. We're trying to reestablish those connections and also sort of push the social media aspect. I mean, it's not going anywhere, but yeah. trying to use it for what it is supposed to be used for, which is seemingly a very daunting task right now. Yeah. But like Mary said, at the crux of this is that human connection, right? And reestablishing that stability with adults yeah. and trusted relationships. And it feels like what one part of the strategy then is like one-to-one, -one, know that every student has an adult that they can rely on. When you say regional, that does shrink the district to some extent. You're, you're not worried about 48,000 kids at once. You're worried about, you know, whatever percentage of kids are in the district, which makes it probably more, from an adult perspective, makes it seem like it's easier to handle. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the strategy behind the regional network model was to create nine regions in the pre-K to six regionally orchestrated in the high schools, slightly different than that. Yeah. And 
to have a school superintendent who really can instructionally and support that group of leaders with what they're trying to accomplish, with the struggles that they may have in their schools. In our case, equitable literacy is one of the first things that we've rolled out through the regional model. And then, you know, an operations leader to help support any kind of like ops issues, which back when I was a regional soup called a network soup, that didn't exist. And frankly, leaders will spend a ton of time on operational things Mm. unless there's support, which means they don't really get to the instructional side. Right. So this is the reason why we've reconstructed the networks. But additionally, having liaisons in kind of all of the key department areas who know that group of 10 to 15 schools, because they're organized, you know, slightly different in number, and know them well, and again, work as partners with that school leader. I think on the student support side, we see this work as a team. So we've you know, we've rolled out social workers into the into the schools. We have district social workers who help those social workers. There's training available because they are frontline workers in How many ways. How are you finding? Are they overwhelmed? Are, they, are all I mean, kids quite honestly, I think yeah. most people in education are yeah. very overwhelmed across the country. I mean, I think it's, a, I mean, every day yeah. we read another headline about another place, another school that has been some sort of crisis has happened. Yeah. And I don't think Boston is different in that aspect. I, I remember you, this was early, you know, when you joined BPS as the superintendent, there was, we covered, you know, on last night at school committee, we covered the school committee meetings. And there, so sometime earlier this school year, you talked about how social media had played a part in safety issues at school. You're commenting specifically on the things that happen when kids are out of school and how they get magnified. And then, the issues end up getting sorted out on school grounds the next day. And so it, I'm assuming that's the reason for one, this strategy in terms of people to help you sort out the things that you were dealing with 10 minutes before, you know, uh, that, I mean, that it's, it's just like it never, it's, it's the school always ends up being the epicenter, I guess, because everyone's then back together physically. Right. So there's, so there's kind of, there's a couple of things. I think the work can be very difficult in isolation. Yeah. And I think in addition to the social workers, the social psychologists, the welcoming, you know, and, and uh, the safety specialists, the family liaisons, mm. the nurses, this is this is the team. And, and our goal is to get them all the same training so that when it comes to de-escalation, when it comes to restorative practice, they, they're seeing things through common lens. Yeah. And then that makes a difference because, one, you feel like a team. Two, right. your approach is the same. So students know that no matter which of those adults they go to, they're going to get some similar kind of response. There's yeah. a consistency. I think that has not necessarily happened in the past. The pandemic didn't really allow for it to. Yeah, right. And I think you know now, now that we're all back in person, we're really trying to take advantage of that to create that teaming aspect. I think, secondly, schools are part of an ecosystem, right? The right. city ecosystem. I mean, right. that's— Students, you know, families are their ecosystem, the community they live, the jobs they work, yeah. much like much like it is for us. And yeah. so what we find with social media, I think, you know, to your question about what's kind of changed, well, one thing I notice is before, if you had a conflict, you know, with another peer, yeah. you really had to come together face-to-face to work that out. Yeah. And what you would say to that person or how you would behave would be differently you know, in person. Sure. Because you had to look at the person, like, you know, you and I are looking at each other right that, now, right? Yeah. And there was a structure with the schools to help work out those conflicts. Yeah. In the year of the pandemic, that all went away. And so students on social media, 
develop bad behaviors, right, with each other of escalating conflict and saying things that, frankly, they weren't accountable for. Right. And there was no mechanism for them to go back I, to. It wasn't just them. <laughs> it wasn't just them. It was adults as well. It seems Absolutely. to have destroyed our political infrastructure as well. It's, it's destroyed so yeah. much of the fabric of humanity, right, yeah. of, of that conversation. Yeah. But then they, they would have had a school to come back to where yeah. they could have gone to Miss Kelton or they could have gone to, you know, their trusted adult and said, hey, this is happening for me on social media. I said some things I shouldn't have or I'm really upset and I'm angry and I don't know what to do with it. And then the school could act as a broker to really support that, right, yeah. and mediate it. Right. That went away for a year. Right. And so without that, what we saw was just kind of increases of bullying online, mm-hmm. increases of racist remarks online, just really the types of things that are hurtful and don't go away and yeah. need a process to actually restore. So that is a lot of the work now that we're trying to, now that we're back in person, use the tools that we have in the form of the teams, in form of the in form of um, you know our team with all of the mental health supports and specialists. We're developing peer mediation programming mm-hmm. so that students have a place safely mm-hmm. to bring conflict. Mm-hmm. We've, I think, educated a lot around what bullying is, what it looks like yeah. for teachers, how to recognize it in their classroom, for students, how to recognize and report it. We've created anonymous hotlines and, and other kinds of tools to report it so that we can get it before it's. you can still do something with a safety plan and a restoration um, and this includes k- kids think about that in terms of cyberbullying and the examples you're just giving. That, exactly. So that, you know, so That's they right. feel like, okay, I'm getting this. I, I have a place to turn to. That's right. Do you, do you ever feel, because I think it's really important to note that you talk about how this is the city. These are, you are educating kids in the city. The majority of kids in the city go to Boston public schools. Do you feel like, and I don't, we don't have to point any fingers, but do you feel like you're getting enough support from the city? Because, and I'll point a finger, but it's not just to bring up conversation. The the mayor talked about, you know, bringing a children, putting together a children's cabinet in the city of Boston. Do you feel like other organizations who do have skin in the game, including parents and families, but also all of these support organizations, the other nonprofits that exist to support kids, the police, the other safety support folks that we have. Are we all jiving? Like, are we doing, are we optimized around the health and wellness of kids? I mean, I think we are learning how to do that coming out of a year of being isolated, a year of being home. I I think People are very willing to do it. We're learning how to do it. Okay. City-based agencies and organizations are willing participants yeah. and willing to sit down and have those conversations. I think in one area where we've improved markedly is around our crisis response in terms of crises that happen that have a community impact. Yeah. And we've been working really well with our city partners. That includes the mayor's office, Boston Police Department, Boston Medical Center, the Public Health Commission in terms of wrapping around our young people and their families to ensure that they have access to the supports that they need in terms of trauma response. Yeah. I attend the Council of Great City Schools conferences, and at at one of the recent ones, the discussion was all around community violence. Yeah. And the violence that kind of then comes into the schools. Yeah. And literally everyone said the same thing. What we're seeing is a national picture of this, right? Yeah. We're we're seeing it not just with students, but we're also seeing it with adults, right? Yeah. And how that yeah. plays out. There's no one vehicle that will solve it all. I do think that there, the work that we have going right now jointly with the city 
has been extremely useful in both helping the city and the ecosystem to understand what happens in the schools and also for us to understand what's available in the city. Yeah. Because so, does the magnitude of the problem, is it on balance with the potential for the solution? Or are we not? Yeah. So it's it's interesting because in my experience, like over 20, over 30 years, right, here in particular, there's a tremendous amount of resources in Boston. But yes. getting the resources to who needs them yeah. can often be the struggle. Yeah. And so I think that's where the communication pieces, the cabinet work at the mayoral level, certainly the student support and youth organizational work that Jillian and the counterparts from the city do, that's critical. We're attempting in creating the deputy position for family and community advancement is to really plug into the community organizations yeah. who are doing this work with youth to make sure that the students who most need it are getting plugged in. Yeah. You know, we know 20% of waking hours is with us. Think of all that other time right. that students are away from us, right. you know, between weekends and after school and, and summers. And so we're really making a concentrated effort to get to the students the supports that exist and where they don't exist, they need to be created. Yeah. Right? And that's kind of the next le level of this or the next layer of this. I think also for the community-based organizations, one of the things we've heard, they're serving the same students we are. Yep. So right. the same mental health challenges, right. right, that present themselves with our students or present themselves with our families, they also have, but they may not have the resources we do. So a lot of this has to be in partnership together to figure this out. For instance, over the summers, traditionally you would see interruption of any kind of like embedded counseling or supports because, frankly, not all students are in school. Yeah. So we're really trying in the summer programming to make sure that we're providing those That's mental right. health supports. We're calling to the table the community-based mental health orgs to be part of our solution so students don't feel that gap as much. That's I, that's terrific. Makes me wonder about anal an analogy. Do you feel like policies are correctly aligned with what you're trying to achieve? Or are there certain policies that you'd like to see movement on or changes in? I'll give you a for example. You, as you know, were very involved in school food. And so the summer feeding program, because of USDA policies, has become deeply problematic. You know, we, out of the pandemic, we had policies that said we could feed kids, anyone could feed kids across the city, across the state, across the country. Kids could come and take a meal. Now, you have to have curriculum wrapped around the meal and the child has to eat the meal in place. So where we had restaurants open and welcoming kids, Spinelli's in East Boston, could, you were a child in East Boston, you could walk in and get two meals for free during the day. Now, you have to sit at a table. Spinelli's doesn't have, although they have delicious, nutritious, amazing food. They don't have a table and therefore Spinelli's can't participate this year because the policy shifted and you can no longer do grab and go. It's supposed to be about food and kids' bodies, but suddenly now we're really worried about making sure they have curriculum along with their food. The USDA is. So, I mean, the, like that's just a policy that seems absurd to me. I'm curious because everything that you're trying to do, the magnitude of it is enormous. You kind of, by default, are the epicenter of child wellness. And I think a little bit, I haven't asked you this question yet, we can go to it next, but I can imagine administrators, teachers, staff are like, God, like, this is a lot on our shoulders. So long, long question, but first, policies. Are there policies that you need to help you with this? So I, I've been pretty outspoken about food policies in our nation for a while. Yeah. 
there's just lots of flaws to them. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, also for social media and just mental illness, too, not particularly. Well, we saw through yeah. the pandemic. I mean, one of, the, one of the things we learned through the pandemic is, it, you know, it underscored this issue that we are the ecosystem in a lot of ways for our students. Totally. And, you know, whether it was food security or mental health or housing security, you know, we became that during the pandemic right. as school system. Right. And I think the transition back to pulling partners in who have the expertise in those areas. Yeah is part of the work that we're doing and have to do, right? So that we truly build out a robust ecosystem. But on the food and nutrition side, it's just always amazed me in our country that we question at all that all students should just be able to eat and we eat whatever they need to eat right. nutritiously. Right. It's just always. It's the idea crazy. that we serve the same meal to the 12-year-old that we do to the 18-year-old who's 210 pounds and six foot three. Yeah, in terms of size. It just amazes me. Yeah. It's, you know, it's the fact that, you know, we encourage students to participate in out-of-school activities. We encourage them to participate in, in summer programming. And then we set limits yeah. on what they can and can't eat yeah. or when they can eat in those programs. These are the things that just, we need a wake-up call yeah. in the nation, right? Yeah. If we're really, truly committed to educational equity. But if I, if I bring it back around to like this, which I hadn't thought about enough until I was talking, sitting here talking to you both. Schools are the epicenter of child wellness. That you, you really are. We the expectation is that you're delivering on basic human needs, because you did. I forgot. Yes, you were involved in housing. You you every day are involved in housing. You every day are involved in food. You every day are involved in mental wellness and a lot in also physical wellness, healthcare, and, and right. So you must feel somewhat not you. The industry at large must feel a little overwhelmed to be having to carry the torch for everyone else at this point. Yeah, I mean, yes, absolutely. But I think that that's sort of what I was alluding to in the beginning of this conversation. That I, know, is, I know, got it. It took that, me a little while. <laughs> and that has always been education and that has always been student support. Yeah. And when we think about it in terms of most schools have one guidance counselor. Yeah. Most schools have one social worker. They have one nurse. Yet we're expected to meet the basic needs of all of the young people who come through our doors. And in a lot of cases, also meet the needs of their families. Right. Because we don't just shut right. it down at the kid. You know, right. if the parent, if the family is struggling, we look to help the family as well. Right. So I think this has always been an education. I think what it feels weird to say exciting time. But it is a fascinating time to be in student support. There's a lot to figure out. Yes. Yeah. And a lot of opportunity. Yeah. But with opportunity, we also have to understand that, like, we don't have a super long time to figure this out. Yeah, I know. This is a we need to do this and we need to do it now, which has been working with Mary has been amazing because she has such a student support lens. So she has really enabled me and empowered me to be able to ask for what I need to know that I've been in the district since 2005 mm -hmm. and I have an understanding and continue to learn from my colleagues and be in schools to see and understand what is missing and what we have to put in place in order for those students to come in every day and feel well taken care of, feel connected and feel safe. Also, the, the unique opportunity we have you know, when I think back in our district and I think about alignment, some of the most productive achieving times for our district was under Dr. Bezant and under Dr. Johnson. Yeah. And what we had was true alignment of a mayor, a city council, 
a school committee in a community, yeah. right? And it, by community, you know, a community not only of families uh, and parents, but also the business community, the nonprofit, the philanthropic, the community-based. Yeah. There was an alignment. Yeah. In a city like ours, that's the alignment we need. Without yeah. that alignment, the school district will be overwhelmed. And so the idea of something like the children's cabinet which I utilized in Somerville, mm-hmm, right. is one mechanism for creating that alignment. Yeah. Because it gets the city agencies and the stakeholders from the community in onto the same page of the priority list right. of what's needed for our schools and our students. Because all of that work that you just addressed, in isolation, there's no way our staff alone can do it. No way. However, when that social worker can activate an agency around homelessness, state or city, they can activate, you know, uh, transportation, uh, city or state, they can activate mental health and get embedded counseling in for the family and a stabilization plan. All of a sudden, that student becomes stabilized. Just to do a thought exercise for a second, I mean, I'm sure you've had this conversation in private. What if you were allowed all of the educators across the city of Boston to just only work on kids' health and wellness for six months. Like we just say, let's just take a pause. Let's get them back to baseline. Let's get them feeling good. Let's make sure they all know. I mean, would, like, would that, would that, would that actually, work? would that help? The core business we have is academics. Yeah. Right? It is to, to give our students from an educational equity lens the kind of skills and tools that they're going to need to go out and succeed. Yeah. Right? And and that means be able to go on to college, to be able to do career, to be able to make an income that's going to allow them to live in the city or elsewhere. Yeah. To get there, we have to make sure that the social, emotional, and the physical well-being are addressed. Yeah. And so— Because how do they retain anything? How do they even that's set— That's right. They can't, yeah, they can't this, kind yeah. of back to the table analogy, hard to access. Yeah. However, for students, their own sense of well-being, interest, motivation— identity, right, are also tied up in learning. Right. Right? We right. all feel good when we learn. Right. That's true. So we have to keep that piece going. Reason for being, purpose. That's right. Yeah. It's purpose. And so we have to keep that piece going because otherwise getting further behind in skill, that's not an op- That's not an option. We so it's s- a piece of it, actually. It's a piece of it. That's right. It's like a tripod almost. And yeah. so I think that's the part that Jillian and her staff are really working hard on the student support to do. I think it's also... You know, it's a lot of the SEL work that's being done on the academic side of the house with curriculum so that it's teachers also who are embedding those SEL skills on a daily basis with students, right? So it's not just happening in counseling or in a pocket, but on a day-to-day experience. It's all of this that eventually kind of lifts us back. But, you know, it is certainly pre-pandemic, we did not see the achievement at the levels we needed to. Yeah. You know, the gaps that existed for our black and brown students, our special ed students, and our multilingual learners were not acceptable. They are no less acceptable today. In fact, they're more unacceptable today. So our focus isn't about going back pre-pandemic. It's about raising BPS to a level of excellence where it is true that you will not predict the outcome of a student based on the area of the city they live. Yeah based on their race, based on the language they speak or don't speak, based on, you know, their social and economic status. We have to have that as our vision. Yeah. And we have to put the resources needed to get there. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's just a lot of resources. Well, it's a lot of well-directed resources. Well-directed resources. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense to me. We interviewed uh, oh, probably a year ago Maggie Noel, who was you were in the district probably at the yeah. time that she she was she led the block at BLS. All BPS schools got involved in this, and um, it was a campaign for which she was honored by Mayor Marty Walsh. She, she basically was exposing racism in BPS schools, and and she created a public conversation. She was. A junior, I think. I think she was a junior. I mean, it's extraordinary. And uh, and she's an extraordinary woman. So kids understand. And maybe she didn't even understand the power of social media at the time. Because when I talked to her, she was kind of like, yeah, that really released <laughs> something bigger than I realized. But, you know, that is what social media is. is it's bigger than all of us. Do, are there examples that you see now, either where staff are using social media to try to kind of drive change, positive change, or kids in BPS using it for those sorts of things? When we talk about being connected to one another, social media in that way is incredibly powerful. Like we saw our assistant superintendent of student development and advancement take a group of kids along with the mayor's office of black male advancement. It was like 50 kids. They got on a bus and went down to the DMV area to do a tour of HBCUs. And I mean, you know, they had a hashtag. They all had these sweatshirts. I mean, and the whole thing was accessible to us. Yeah. Via social media and incredibly powerful. And I think when we start to understand that, yes, social media is one of our it can be looked at as a weakness, but it is also like most things, a paradox on the other side of this. It is a great uniter. Yeah. And when we start to use it that way, we understand how it can unify, you know, unify us. I mean, it goes back to, Superintendent, what you were saying about when you gave a a child a laptop, they didn't exactly know how to manage it until you told them, explained to them what what the tool was all about. And I think that is a big, I mean, for parents and Mm -hmm. educators and kids, like that is our biggest challenge today is to learn how to make this thing make sense in our lives. But I think I just want to throw this in there because when Mary talks about the laptops at Tech Boston. Yeah. One of the other incredibly powerful things that it did, and I think that you saw, Mary, was that when those students started and we handed them this laptop, it instantly told them that we trusted them. Yeah. And that creates an entry point for the development of such an incredibly powerful relationship between a student and their school. Yeah. 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 And so it's all about how we then manage that and, and, mm-hmm. and treat it like a tool. And do you feel like it, it sounds like you're doing a lot of programming with teachers that already work for BPS, but students who are in graduate school being trained, should the training be shifting around so that so that people are more and more aware of the dynamics of today's world? Because I don't I don't know that curriculum has shifted. Maybe I'm wrong. Listen, I think that there are definitely aspects of social media that are positive. Yeah. Right. I, I think for many students, that is a way that they build community, yeah. right? And that yeah. can be special, right? right? Particularly if a student isn't as comfortable, you know, in person, you know, or, you know, yeah. is shy or more introverted. So so sometimes students can be very different. You know, I've, I've heard parents and students say, my student flourished during remote learning, yeah. right? Because, right. They, because they actually struggle with the in-person piece. So I do think that there's definitely aspects. I think for us, we use it a lot with communication. Mm-hmm. Um, we push out a lot of messaging, when we have something we want to get out, like the, you know, for instance, the Burke Mental Health Day, yeah. you know, they did their work with the social media piece. I've seen students, you know, one of the one of the things that's very powerful is when they work on public service announcements. 
you know, I think a lot of the sexual harassment, bullying, and cyberbullying, mm-hmm. a lot of that stuff appeared first in public service announcements that they were creating that they, they then used social media to, to be huh. able to spread the word. So I do think there's a sense of student agency with social media and there's um, advocacy for sure. Yeah. I think it's just that everything has to be in moderation. Yeah. And to your point before, right now it can feel like sometimes there's no boundary. Right. No boundary would speak to no moderation. So right. I think we have to strive for the moderation. We have to strive to inform and and make sure that both parents and students are the most skilled that they can be using social media in, yeah. in the ways they are. And that comes down to relationship, conversation, awareness. And again, social media can help support that in a healthy way. So, you know, some some of this is us finding our way back to moderation post-pandemic, where to Jillian's point, everyone stepped off the deep end. Totally. And for most of us as adults, it was not a pleasant deep end. Mm-hmm. I think for students, some found comfortable and they could swim and then others felt that they couldn't and they couldn't access. Yeah. So, you know, that's the moderation I think we strive to get back to is, you know, in this year— you know, even though Chromebooks are out in our schools and students are using internet and so forth, we're really pushing the imagination, play, relationship building, physical contact, you know, like in, in each other's presence, you know, much more to get, help get students back to that, yeah. that middle ground. Back and grounded. That's so beautiful. I need to let you go, but I wanted to ask you a fun question to close out. The, um, I was thinking about you as an educator. So where would you... In the city of Boston, where would your favorite place be to take a field trip? For me, I'm a big Red Sox fan. I'm a big sports fan in general. I don't want to talk about the Bruins last night. I know. <laughs> that was um, a tough one. But I, the, the Red Sox Foundation has done this incredible program for us with Mass Mutual where our, all of our sixth graders get to go to a learning lab over at, at Fenway. Yeah. And teachers have actually organically created the curriculum for how to learn math, science, English, and social studies in Fenway Park. So So if I were an educator back then, Mm -hmm. like now, and I had that opportunity, I would have my kids there. Being able to really just do applied learning and see things and recognize that for many students, they don't get to go to Fenway. Right. So it's like a neat way to be able to see the park and learn about its history and so forth. That's what I think I would do. That's such a great example of how, like, the universe is there. Really textbook, actually. It's beautiful. Thank you. Thank Thank you you. both for joining me today. I really appreciate it. It was a great conversation. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for listening to my conversation with BPS Superintendent Mary Skipper and Chief of Student Support Jill Kelton. I hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.